but you have to step out there and you have to you know believe in yourself because if you don't believe in yourself nobody else will and just keep fighting and it worked yeah. out Hello and welcome to the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. I am your host, Bobby Audley. 50 Cups of Coffee is an idea that began with a TEDx talk in 2016 and has since become a pillar of employee engagement at organizations, a tool for developing young professionals, a simple yet powerful practice for connecting a team, and of course, a podcast. This podcast is a show where I have coffee in conversation with some of the best leaders in the world, and we talk about leadership, team culture, and the power of connection. As I shared on the previous episode, I have experienced a major shift in my work, and these two new episodes are a reflection of that. In October of last year, I joined the TLC family of camps as a co-director at Timberlake West Camp in the Catskill Mountains of New York. On today's episode, I sit down with the founder and CEO of the TLC family of camps and inns, Jay Jacobs. If the TLC family of camps sounds familiar to you, on episode 28, I had coffee with Dave Skolnick, the COO of the company and the co-founder of FAST, fitness and athletic skills training for kids. I won't get too into Jay's bio because we chat about it for most of this episode, but I do want to give you the highlights. As the founder and CEO of the TLC family of camps and inns, Jay is the majority owner of three sleepaway camps, three day camps, a preschool, and two country inns, one in the Catskill Mountains and one in the Poconos. In 1991, Jay co-founded the nonprofit Scope Summer Camp Opportunities Promote Education. Scope funds camp scholarships, or camperships as they're known, to send kids to camp. From the Scope website, Summer camp is an essential component of the year-round educational continuum and plays a critical role in helping children from underserved communities thrive. The vast majority of children in low-income communities have little or no access to summer opportunities, resulting in an enormous achievement gap and summer learning loss. Scope bridges this gap by making summer camp accessible to as many deserving children as possible. To date, Scope has sent over 25,000 kids to camps across the country. On top of that, in 2001, Jay founded and currently serves as the chair of Heal the Children, a program of the American Camp Association that provides free camperships to the children of victims of the 9-11 tragedy. On this episode, we talk almost exclusively about Jay's success as a camp founder and operator. I share this in the intro so you know Jay gives as hard and as much as he works. Outside of camp, Jay is the chairman of the New York State Democratic Committee. I spend the last quarter of this episode asking Jay about how he balances his political duties with his business responsibilities. I think no matter what side of the aisle you are on, or if you're not on either, you will get a lot out of that part of the episode especially if public service and serving your community is a calling for you while keeping your business or day job alive and thriving. Jay has been a mentor to me, whether he was aware of it or not, for many years. I share that story when I ask him for his 50 cups of coffee story at the end of the episode. I am grateful to now be a part of his TLC family. Our mission as a camp organization is this. We teach children the skills of making and keeping friends while building their self-esteem, self-confidence, and resilience. 
this mission impacted me when I first heard it 15 years ago as a camp counselor at one of Jane's camps. It inspired my mission to create a world in which people feel connected wherever they are. And it is what drew me to Timberlake West last fall. To learn more about all of our camps, inns, and programs, head on over to camptlc.com. For now, please enjoy my cup of coffee with Jay Jacobs. What was your first experience with camp? Was it was it going to camp at Timberlake? How'd well, you... my first experience was at Camp Kindering. My, okay. my parents sent me to Kindering. I think I was six years old. Is that a day camp? That a... It's a sleepaway camp. Sleepaway camp, okay. 1962. Okay. So I was there for three summers. And um, homesick the whole time, I think. Really? Uh, all, three, all three summers, at least yeah. for good portions of it. Uh, and, and then I, um, I went to Camp Echo Lark, which is now Camp Westmont. Oh, okay. That, that's yeah, the property. Yeah. I was there for two years, and then my father sent me in 1967. I was 11 years old, and he sent me to Timberlake, and I've been why, there ever since. I mean, you're going to share the dirty details of these camps if, if that wasn't it, but why did you end up at three different camps? I mean, that's kind of unique to go to three different sleepaway camps. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know why we left Kindering. Um, I'm not sure of that, but Echo Lark was a more expensive camp, and I think that circumstances changed for my father so after two summers there at that tuition rate he was looking for something a little bit uh, more reasonable for him and uh, yeah. Timberlake seemed to fit the bill okay and was it so did you have siblings that were also going to camp is it just you? no, no actually not my, my brother my brother went to kindering for half the season uh, at least once but uh, he didn't like camp and they, they never he was older than me they never yeah. they never made him go back I was the only one that went the full time. Yeah. And where did you live? Where was Forest you? Hills, Queens. I lived Forest in an apartment Queens. building on Queens Boulevard, two two bedroom, one bathroom. Yeah. Apartment. What did your dad do for a living? My father was a salesman. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good salesman. Was it? Uh... Well, I mean, I think he was okay. Yeah. He certainly liked it. Yeah. Um, never really. Was he traveling? Was this like door to door sales? No, back then? he was more. He was more t- taking goods from a manufacturer that he represented to places like Macy's, Saks Fifth Avenue, Bloomingdale's, and yeah. what have you, and selling to the buyers in whatever department that he was, um, you know, yeah, in charge of at that time. Okay, and was it ju- you were raised by just your dad? You, you well, your yeah, uh, my um, my it's a sad story. In my last year at Echo Lark. Um, again, I was very close to my mother and somewhat homesick and the rest. I couldn't wait to get home. And, um, the bus, uh, the bus comes home, uh, gets back to Bayside, which is where the buses went. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my father and my brother were there and I didn't see my mother. And we got in the car. We had to drop off another family, uh, in Forest Hills. And when they got out of the car, my father turned around. My brother stayed in the front seat, just looking forward. He wouldn't look at me. I was in the back and he told me that your mother doesn't live with us anymore. She had left to marry somebody else. They got a divorce during the summer mm-hmm. and uh, she moved away and moved into the city. Wow. So I was left with my father who I did not really get along with that well. Yeah. So it was kind of a bumpy time. Yeah. You know? And that's why I always look forward to camp because camp was the best part of my uh, time. And certainly I think in the second or third year at Timberlake, I started this uh, routine that I have where as soon as camp was over, I was counting down the days till the start of the next season. I've done it to the, to this year. I know today yeah. how many days it is. You do. You do. Yep. <laughs> right off the top of your head. Right. And so 
Okay, so then you get to Timberlake, and was it an instant home? Uh, what was your kind of yeah, experience you know, going there? When you got to Timberlake back in the day, there's a big hill leading up into the camp. And the hill was a dirt road at the time. It didn't have any guardrails on it. It was really fairly precarious, a steep drop uh, on the way up off to the left. And, and if a car was coming down, you had to pull over, and uh, you know, it really wasn't meant for two-way traffic. It was pretty tough. So the buses never made it up to the top of the hill to camp. So what would happen is at a turnaround point, sometime down, somewhere down the road, you'd pull over the bus, everybody get out with your things, and they'd load us up onto, into these what they called rack trucks, big old-fashioned World War II-style army rack trucks where you put the troops, you know, mm-hmm. open rack trucks, and that would drive you up the rest of the way. And I remember the truck when it was my turn, and we went up that hill, and I, I still remember the truck made the... The, uh, went up the hill and made the right around the lake and you saw the magnificence of Saddle Mountain and all the rest of it and I said this place is something This I want to own this one day yeah. that's what I said and you then. told me that story before that you said I want to own this one day yeah that's the joke in camp when I was a yeah. kid was Jay says he's going to own the camp was it the camp. Gen- to you was it a joke were you, were you did you have a, a, a fantasy or a dream of actually owning it or was it like- I, I, would, I would watch a TV show back in the day Bonanza and that was about out west, uh, this uh, rancher, uh, Ben Cartwright, and his two sons had this beautiful, huge ranch out uh, in Nevada near Virginia City called the Ponderosa. And they had this beautiful log cabin uh, that they had. And I would always watch that show, and I'd say, I, I'm going to have a Ponderosa one time. I'm, I'm gonna, one day I'm going to do that. So I always kind of dreamt that I would yeah. do it. Do you know you're going to do it? Uh, no, you don't. Yeah. But, but you believe it and you go toward that dream. That's why I've always believed you follow your dreams. Sometimes yeah. they work out. And now you know my my cottage in the center of camp yeah. is the no, Ponderosa. That's the first thing I was thinking. Right? Yeah. And so we'll, we'll we'll build to you actually owning the camp. So what what type of camper were you? Were you a good camper? Were you uh, were you we, literally we just were at the ACA Tri-State Conference. You just did a session on camper behavior. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. What, what type of camper were you as a kid? I, I, I was always a nice kid. In yeah. other words, I, I never gave anybody a hard time. I, I never, um, uh, you know, I, I stood back a bit more maybe than I should have. I was not athletic. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't like sports at all. I wasn't good at sports. I was a little heavy. I, was, I had, had a good amount of weight on me. Kids made fun of that. I didn't enjoy that. Uh, sometimes there were bullies uh, mm-hmm. that I was on the receiving end of. I liked horseback riding. We had horseback riding in the day, and that I, that I did and liked it. Of course, then there were kids that made fun of the fact that my shoes, even though I left them out on the porch, would smell bad from the horses, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, all in all, I have to say I was a good kid. But, uh, you know, for the most part, um, I, I enjoyed camp better than I enjoyed being at home. Mm-hmm. So... For me, you know, while it wasn't the best at camp always, yeah, it certainly was better than than being at home. Yeah. So then, you end up. Uh, I know. So you went to Northwestern for a law degree, correct? Right. That, that was so. Law, so what was your undergrad? What did you end up doing in college? I, I went to first to one year. The first year I went to York College, City University in New York, and it was a financial decision. We didn't have the money, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was free. Uh, City Inver- City University was at the time. So I did one year there. And then three years at State University at Oneonta. Mm-hmm. And I was an RA, so I worked my way through uh, Oneonta to okay. a large degree and studied economics and political science and then went off to Northwestern Law. And were you working camp in the summer at this rate? Every summer. Every summer. I, I was yeah. at camp straight through. Okay. And so then you go to study political science, go study law. What was the original plan in life at that time? Well, I was going to be a lawyer. Um, I was going to go out, be a lawyer. I wanted to get into politics. I want, maybe wanted to run for office. Uh, at, at some point, always loved the camp aspect, never 
understood how those two could go hand in hand, but I figured I'd take the camp thing as far as it can go until I had to go and get a, a, a law job. My father yeah. would say a real job. Okay. And so then what happened? How did, uh, how did you end up buying Timberlake? Well, it, it was uh, 1979. I was 23 years old. I was the head of the, the teens, the waiters at the time. We were camper waiters. Mm -hmm. And um, I saw the owner of the camp, who I knew very well, and everybody was afraid of this guy. He was just the managing mm -hmm. guy. He owned 80%. Uh, Ralph Bannett was his name. Cy Lebinger was the camp director, who I was closer to in a certain sense. But I got along very well with both of them. Been there for years. Um, I saw him bringing people around in the kitchen and showing them the refrigerators and other things. Look, God. So I asked Cy about that, and Cy said to me, "He goes, well, Jay, if you ever wanted to own the camp, now's the time because Ralph is selling." So I, I decided to go up to him in the evening, and he was a tough guy, nasty guy. So he, he was standing in front of the canteen. It was evening time. Um, and I remember walking up to him uh, early July one evening. We had had Chinese food that night, and he had yelled at me because this, there were no serving spoons in the chow mein that came out, and, yeah. and I was in charge of the waiters, and he made a whole to-do, so I didn't want to talk to him then. I waited. So now I see him standing by himself. I walked up, and I said, Ralph, can I ask you a question? And he said, you already did, and he turned and he walked away. <laughs> so I said, can I ask you a few more? He said, yeah, what do you want? I said, I understand you're selling the camp. He said, what's it to you? I said, well, if you're selling, I'm buying. He said, you can put that together. You have the money for that? I said, well, my family does. Uh, truth be told, we had no money. Yeah. Well, a little, but nothing like that. And um, he said, all right. And we started to have a conversation. Turned out he really wanted out. And uh, long story short, he made a very um, good deal with me where I bought the camp over time. Very little down payment. And um, you know, I did a lot of the negotiating from law school. Mm -hmm. And on January the 2nd, in uh, 1980, I bought the camp, and so the summer of 1980 was my first year as a director. Wow. Cy Lebinger stayed yeah. for a couple of years, and then uh, I took it on my own. So that was, you, you, you started to answer, and maybe you did fully answer, the, the question I've always wanted to ask, and, and there's a lot of thinking of you know listeners to this podcast. There's a number of small business owners or even people that are dreaming of that, and I've shared your story before because you've told me this story, and the one question people always ask me is, well, he must have come from money if he bought a camp, and I knew you didn't, but I didn't know the details. Yeah. And so that's, I guess that's the details. You negotiated a, did you take a loan at all? Or well, was fully, here, here's what it didn't, yeah. it didn't turn out, there was no money. What happened was this. My father got into a, a business with some folks several years before in the early 70s. And they were opening a business. My father was owning some shares of it. And somehow, and again, you know, I hear his side of it. I don't know the full side of it. It didn't work out. They ended up separating from him. He ended up suing them. And um, he got as a settlement $14,000. Mm -hmm. That was what he got. His accountant had a friend who was opening up a mutual fund. So um, the mutual fund was going to be $200,000 from 10 guys, $20,000 apiece. Well, my father had fourteen. Didn't have enough money to get in. So he came to me and my brother Leonard, and he said, uh, you guys have $3,000 each. If you give it to me, you'll own 15% of my 10% of this fund, whatever happens. And whenever you want the money, I'll give you the money if you just give me the money now. So I gave him the money. My brother gave him the money, and we owned 15%. Mm -hmm. Well, lo and behold, by the time 1979 rolled around, and he was telling me the fund was doing pretty well, that $3,000 had grown into $28,000. Mm -hmm. That was what was my share. So I negotiated the deal to end up buying what was then... 35% of the camp 
all right, for $28,000 down, the rest of it financed by um, uh, Ralph Bennett, mm -hmm. who, who held the note, okay. right? And my father bought 5%, my brother bought 15%, altogether the family had 55%. Mm -hmm. I soon bought my father out, my brother still owns 15% of the okay. yeah. right? And then I bought the other partners out. Right, well I think that's important, I think the, the number one question I get from, from people with this kind of stuff is A, the assumption of coming from money and B, if not, then it must be you're taking out a giant loan instead of the reality of most businesses is creativity, negotiations, conversations. And, and, and like you said, you had, and the guy access. liked me. I mean, yeah. bottom line is not a lot of people didn't get along with Ralph Bennett. He was tough. Mm -hmm. I mean, real tough. And at times, as I said, nasty. And, um, he, he didn't suffer fools gladly as they say, mm -hmm. but he liked me. And I think that was part of it. I was always, you know, a, a hard worker. I, you know, I was always respectful to him. Um, and, um, you know, uh, where he needed help, I was there as a, as a yeah. staff member. So, and then, so take me through, you know, what was your, what was Jay Jacobs' first year as as a camp director like? And were you, so you're 24 at yeah, this time. At the, by the time did I'm running, did the you camp. finish law school? Yes. So you finished, finished law, law school, school. Never took the bar. Didn't take the bar. No. You're 24 years old, and you are. I'm running the camp. On and running this camp. Yeah. What is that first year? Well, I had I had Cy Lebinger with me, and that was contentious because he wanted it to stay the way it was, and I realized that to make it the camp that it had to be. Uh, to make some good money out of it, we had to take it in a different direction. So we, we were battling a bit. And, you know, I was making my share of mistakes, and he was enjoying it. Uh, but I, I would say to you, I learned an awful lot. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was always um, somewhat good at, I guess, is listening to people, talking to people, and getting a sense of what direction, you know, we could take things in. I also had vision, you know, for what the camp could be and how to make it that. So... It was contentious at times, you know. I, I wanted to introduce a new alma mater. I thought the old one was a drag, and um, you, you had the camp first would sing the, my new alma mater, and then dedicated to Cy, they'd sing the old alma mater. It was always a, some, you know, group of rebellious uh, yeah. old timers yeah. there. Yeah. So you had a bit of that, but you know, you work your way through. How was? I mean, that that is, I think. Uh, I mean, there's probably plenty of sessions. There are sessions here at Tri-State about that in camp. That's always the thing. But in a lot of industries, um, the kind of balance between tradition and innovation um, was there as much pushback from the camp as a whole, or was it really just from a couple of people that were clinging well, to old ways? I, I think it's always you know the, the probably more than a couple, but it's the hardcore you know returnees traditionalists. Yeah. Um, one of which was is my current wife. <laughs> Mindy ultimately in the second yeah. year she came up the next year and she was a traditionalist you know, okay. she, she didn't like a lot of the changes yeah uh, but you know over time you begin to see that success is built upon some of the things we're doing and um, you know it, it begins to work out even uh, you know when I was there the division leaders the head council staff the directors nobody wore anything that said Timberlake on it you wore whatever t-shirt sloppy or otherwise you wanted to wear yeah. in whatever color you chose for the day and I decided I was going to make everybody a uniform um, and boy, they were not happy. And where, so these ideas, I mean, what was, where, what was the state of the camp industry at the time? Cause this was a long time ago. Now it seems that a lot of these ideas are standard practice at a lot of camps. What were in 1980, you got to remember for the most part, nobody was running this as a full-time business. Right. Most camp directors were educators in some fa form or fashion or had just retired as educators, you know, but didn't understand the business concept. They understood camp as this, you know, summer experience that they enjoyed. Yeah, they made some money out of it, and uh, hopefully they made more than you know went in that year. But yeah. um, 
They didn't work on budgets. They weren't business oriented. I, I brought a bu business. Did you have that vision it. that it could be that? Like, were there camps that were business oriented? Not or? really. No. So you had a vision that this could be more of a business than it is. That's right. And I was reading a lot of business books. Yeah. And I was looking at other businesses and just trying to learn outside of camping. Now, you know, I, I, I started and then hired people that worked full time and I took it on full time. Mm -hmm. And I think that made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And were those lean years taking it on full time at first and hiring my, people? My first year's salary in 1980 was $7,000. Yeah. Yeah. I could have made quite a number of times that in the law. Yeah. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do think this is important, the mentality of what was going on. So for you, like you said, you could have been in law, you could have been in politics at some level. Um, and looking at your current political career, obviously that itch never went away. So it's not like you went to law school and thought this isn't for me mentally for you i mean were you just that committed to this business were you that in love with camp uh to make the, such a pivot to an untested business model and industry like what was your kind of commitment at that level and mental state as a business owner i think i just love camp yeah i love being there i love sitting in talking to the kids i love talking to the staff i love teaching the staff i love learning about child development and motivating people, reading leadership books and putting some things into practice. Mm -hmm. I love the business aspect. I, I love also adding new facilities and creating them and designing them and thinking about them. And then, you know, it, it started to get a little routine and I had to buy another camp to keep my, you know, creative juices flowing. Yeah. And so we did that. So, I mean, that's good, good, uh, good segue into that. So growing from one camp to another, um, how does that happen? Well, the first part of the deal had to be that I, I wasn't gonna grow and I wouldn't stay a multi-camp owner if it meant me having to leave my job as director of Timberlake. Mm. So, you know, a, a, an absolute requirement was that I could still direct the camp hands-on, which turned out to be a good thing because, you know, uh, customers change, campers change, behaviors change, the staff changes, parents change, times change. And if I'm in an office somewhere, you know, listening to what's going on at various camps and dropping in here and there from time to time, I'm not immersed in it and getting the full experience because remember, the parents who are sending their children to Timberlake are the same parents for the most part that are going to Timberlake West, Tyler Hill, the day camps, the others. Camper needs and the camper mm -hmm. problems are the same, just like uh, the viruses that affect us in the summer yeah. are the same. And so by running hands-on one camp, it gives me a better handle on how to uh, help manage the other camps, even though I'm not the hands-on director mm -hmm. of those camps, and you have to have a lot of trust and faith in the people who are. Mm -hmm. And then, and we can get into the the weeds of the business of camp, which is kind of where we've gone. But I also want there's listeners of this podcast. There's there's camp professionals, um, but there's also coaches, parents, people from the corporate world who um, I know this because when I took on this this role, um, several people had never even kind of heard of this type of sleepaway camp. I think even, you know, in the United States, it's, it's like any industry. It has its niche. And inside that niche, you can't fathom that people haven't heard of it. And what we're finding is more of these families are learning about it. And when they learn about it, they're leaning in more um, because of what it provides. And so I want to give you a platform to make your case for camp for someone who's never been to sleepaway camp, never even thought about sending their kid to sleepaway camp. They're listening to this. They're looking up your websites. Um, why should someone consider sending their kid to camp? Well, yeah, I, I would say to you that everything I am in life and have become in life and have achieved in life has at its root camp. 
And as I said at the beginning, um, camp was not always easy for me. I mean, you know, life's lessons are not learned or best learned through the easy, through the, you know, always smooth. They're learned through sometimes bumpy times. Mm -hmm. Camp has evolved and gotten better because where, I'll use the term, economic term, laissez-faire, you know, he was thrown into camp in the days when I was at camp and, you know, come what may, if there was a bully, deal with it. Uh, if you weren't good in sports, a kid made fun of you, deal with it, you know, try to get better or whatever it is. Now, listen, that's my father's approach. You know, somebody was, you know, nasty or mean to me or, or hit me or what have you. He said, well, punch him in the nose. That was his answer. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's not the world today. And that's not camp today. So camp uh, now is far more intentional in its approach to making sure that children who come to our camp, you know, we... we um, we build self-esteem, self-confidence, social skills, friendship, and the like, resilience. Those are the things we focus on in, in our mission at camp, and really, really pay attention to that. Now, on top of that, I, I every summer will target a handful of kids. They've got no idea I'm targeting them, because we have 460 campers, and mm -hmm. most of them are in fairly mainstream and what have you. But through conversations, private conversations I have with some parents, over the course of the winter time, or maybe it was on a tour. They'll tell me something about their child, um, about their personality, uh, some, some perceived inadequacies that the, the child may feel, um, typically self-esteem issues. They haven't found themselves, they're, they're maybe shy, maybe they're introverted, uh, or, or maybe they're extroverted, but they're a bit of a phony about it because they really haven't made connections with friends. So, and I, I try to limit the number because it's, it's work and it takes a lot of time and you got to do it in a way that's not noticeable. But I'll, I'll, I'll take those, I'll call them cases, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, privately. I, I don't tell the parents that I'm doing it specific and I certainly don't tell the kids. Mm -hmm. But I'm watching those kids and I'm finding those moments where we can enhance their self-esteem, really put them in positions to shine and have that great moment, whether it's singing that solo on the stage or it's winning that contest or putting them in a position to, to win the, the college bowl. And, and it's not just one thing, it's other things. And I make sure that the counselors are keeping me up to date on how that camper is doing. And if I find there's something going wrong there, I'm, I'm uh, engaged in that rapidly mm -hmm. to see that that goes well. Because at the end of the day, I, I do want to hear from that parent you know, without me calling them, I want to hear, you know, my son, my daughter came home from camp this summer. Wow, what a change. Yeah. And we hear that a lot. Yeah. And it's a change for the better. Yeah. And, and I think that that makes everything worth it. All of the, you know, the stress and the, you know, challenges of camp. There's a bit of that, yeah. you know. Uh, all of that is made better. You know, when you hear one parent tell you that child, you know, that came home, their kid. What a difference. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, the part partially my selfish desire to do this podcast was also just to to, <laughs> to ask you questions and i think that's that's something i'll take away i think that's really brilliant and it's and it's you know logistically realistic mm -hmm. too because like you said there are so many campers and uh, you can easily get lost in the day-to-day -day of just kind of making sure the day flows and the operations go um, but those one-on-one -on -one interactions with kids is most important one of the things i took from you last year was talking about when a performance is happening or something's going on, instead of watching the performance, look at the audience to see if the campers are engaged and enjoying themselves and having fun. And, and even a, a nuance to that, and maybe you said this or I just thought of it over the summer, was um, I also can sometimes catch myself looking at the staff 
and the staff might be having a lot of fun and that's great i want them to have fun too but they might be having fun and really laughing and the campers aren't and 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 the campers are the customer and the ones that we need to be focused on and paying attention to and uh, i that was just a great nuance for any business in my opinion of make sure what you're doing is not just pleasing you or your staff but it's pleasing the customer and the people you set out to to operate for exactly right yeah um before we leave camp because i do want to talk a little bit about your your political world just from a place of uh, life balance and leadership and 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 that um anything else you want to share about kind of what you've learned from camp or your growth in the industry we touched a little bit on kind of you've gone from and this will be in the intro too but from one camp to now it's uh, what six total camps and and two inns um any kind of just overall thing I, to I, share think, from? I think the amazing thing about camp is you know i think about this um, it's rare that someone goes back to their uh, day camp when they're 40 years old. They come to New York, they went to day camp when they grew up in New York, and they make time to go back to their day camp. It's rare. It mm-hmm. happens, but it's not often. I cannot tell you how many people I see during the summer or even sometimes you know, in the shoulder uh, weeks and months mm-hmm. who want to come up and see Timberlake and any of my other camps that happens as well, Sleepways. Because the camp was so impactful in their lives. They've got friendships that they've made that they've lasted, that have lasted their whole lives. Mm-hmm. They've had life experiences that have changed, their, changed them, changed the course of their lives. I've had couples that have met in camp and come back. Ran into a couple in a local restaurant in Phoenicia, right near my camp, who the guy comes over to me uh, from Britain. Uh, this is in like March, a couple of years ago. And he says, are you Jay Jacobs? I said, yeah. He said, I'm so-and-so. I, I, I was up at your camp, um, and it had to be 10, 10, 12, or more than that, 15 years before, because now we had grown-up children. He said, and I met my wife there, and, and they came over. This was our anniversary. We wanted to come back here. And it was so nice. Of course, I, they didn't know what I paid for their meal before I left, <laughs> because what the heck. Yeah. But um, it was just really, um, you know, to me, being able to make that kind of an impact, make impacts you don't even realize mm-hmm. that you're making. It's like planting seeds along the way and you never turn around to look at what grows mm-hmm. uh, as time goes by, but know that something really good does grow. That's what makes camp terrific. And that's why parents should send their kids to camp because you know, no matter what you've got in a child and what they like and what their, you know, their favorite activities may or may not be, camp is about uh, teaching them the social skills and giving them self-esteem and self-confidence, and that's what a good camp experience should do. And I love that you've brought up the social skills and the confidence and self-esteem several times because that is the mission of camp that's on the, the website and the walls. And uh, so when did like that mission, were you always clear on that from day one? When did that become a part of things? No, um, we weren't. I, you know, when I first took over the camp, it was running the camp, running the business and the, and the rest. And I didn't know it from a, from a intentionality standpoint of doing good things for people and kids. Um, I, I didn't know what I was doing. It was, you know, it, it was taking my life experiences as a kid. And I think one of the advantages I have is that, you know, so often when you grow up, uh, you see yourself as the adult you are today and you really forget the details of being a kid. I, I think why there, there are great writers and uh, producers and uh uh, creators in the arts like Spielberg and all the rest, they're, they're probably still kids. In other words, they grew up, but they didn't lose the imagination of being a kid. They didn't lose their childhood experiences, which so impact their creativity and their ability to do the job they do. Similarly, I have that to a degree in that 
those feelings are still with me. And when that kicked in, and I, I began over time, and I think it was dealing with kids that taught it to me uh, more than anything else, I, I realized I was in a very powerful position, and I was just wasting time and, and just losing opportunity by not you know, being more mindful and uh, purposeful in what I was teaching and, and making the camp into. And I finally decided this camp was going to be the place I would have liked to have come when I was a child. I didn't have that. And I wanted that for all of the kids who went there, whether you're a good athlete or you're not a good athlete like I was, uh, not a good athlete. So that's, that's where it started. And then I, I realized that the root cause of everything, if you want to be successful in life, all right, no matter what it is, you want to uh, find a cure for cancer, uh, and, and maybe you're the greatest scientist, and maybe one day you will. If you have nobody to go home to uh, that will share in your joy and in that great achievement, um, then you're a lost soul in a sense. Yeah, you cured cancer, and that's great for humanity. But for you as an individual with a limited time on this earth, I don't know that you're going to get the fulfillment that you could get if you had those social um, connections. And part of that's your self-esteem and your self-confidence that enables you to do that. It's the social skills that you learn, understanding how to deal with people. And so if I could uh, put all that together, I, I would be creating a, a, a group of people who come through my camp and leave it far more able to become successful in life than before. If you define success, not by, you know, uh, finding a cure for cancer so much, which of course is a success, <laughs> hopefully somebody does, but, but by the success of being happy. Mm. I think success in life for the most part is, are you happy? Yeah. And what makes you happy? You're happy in the relationships you have, mm. you know, and what makes you comfortable. And that's maybe different for different people, but everybody needs somebody. And I think camp is a perfect place to help children grow and give them the social education they don't get in schools and really, frankly, not from parents either to, to get to that point a little bit better. And I always tell parents, you know, we're far more uh, better shape than you are to take care of the self-esteem of, of your children. Mm -hmm. uh, that's because... Growing up, you know, when, when they first walked, it was like Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. It's the greatest thing in the world. Like, no person has ever done it before. And everything subsequently, you know, if they score a basket, oh, my God, you're the greatest. So that's wonderful, and you should do that. But kids are smart, and after a while, they realize that, that becomes expected. Sure, mm -hmm. our parents are going to say that. Does it mean it's true? Well, you know, but when a friend says it, a coach says it, somebody who doesn't, and hasn't proven over years of being uh, in love with them unconditionally, mm -hmm. but meets them and says, wow, you know, you're really talented. You're really good. You're great at this. You could be better, but this is how you're going to do it. And here's how, how you can, you're the best. Those are the kinds of things kids never forget. Mm -hmm. They may forget the moment, but they don't forget the feeling. Yeah. Our uh, the keynote, opening keynote speaker at the conference right, right now is Charles Duhigg, the author of The Power of Habit. And he started his speech today. I know you were there, but sharing with the folks listening, started his speech today by saying, school teaches kids how to do things. Camp teaches kids how to be human. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here's this guy who's arguably not in the camp industry and you have 3,000 plus people. You could hear how much they, they appreciated that and took that and, and, you know, you've said twice or maybe three times now, you weren't a good athlete. And, you know, 
I know a lot of people's understanding of camps and particularly our camps is that sports is a big part of it. Um, arguably, I always say uh, sports is what you see because when you go to a camp facility, you know, if you've got soccer fields, football fields, pools, basketball courts, tennis courts, that takes up a lot of space. Our art barn at Timberlake West takes up far less space, but has quite frankly, just as much, if not more programming, our, our, you know, new music facility. Um, so, you, you could spend most of your day not playing sports, but it's also an environment where if you're not an athlete, my goal is always you come in and you try sports and you play it and you have fun with it. And maybe you go home and you want to sign up for more just because you enjoyed it, not because you're going to be a professional athlete someday. And on the flip side, uh, we have campers that come to us for our second session that play club lacrosse, club baseball, soccer at a very high level, and they come to our second session and they're telling me I can't wait to see you at lacrosse and they never show up to lacrosse which is actually I enjoy because they got involved in other things one of the campers in particular spent most his elective sessions at woodworking which was something his parents never expected this is an environment where they get to choose who they want to be and what they want to do and how they want to try these things out and a reoccurring theme on this podcast is how those environments don't exist anymore. It used to be you could just leave your door and hop on your bike and go anywhere, find friends and play, pick up something, and you didn't necessarily have to be good at it. And, you know, it's not cliche, it's the truth. That just doesn't exist anymore. And so finding those environments, opening day, second session for me last year, another cool moment was the kid, the boys' side moved in at record speed i think they dropped their bags and then just went to like the basketball court like they didn't unpack anything and and what happened was a group of them started playing pickup basketball and i had a counselor who came over to me and was like what should we do about this and i go what do you mean what should we do about this he goes is this fine like should we be they had just spent 14 days training and they're like should we jump in should we do something i was like no this is this is might be the only pickup game these guys have ever played because you could tell they were kind of figuring it out. And so all of that, you know, is just my own soapbox and ramble from your sharing of your mission, your goals of is that individual happy? And as a coach, uh, I get very uh, bothered when parents miss that. And I'm not trying to kind of come down on parents, but it's just when they miss that concept of the goal here is that your kid is happy define what that means and how do we get there and i've seen plenty of people that have played at a very high level that aren't happy and those who have that are like it's just finding what makes you happy and i think that's a perfect way to kind of wrap up and define camp i agree i agree yeah this is kind of a pivot but it's not because i i went in a billion different directions as to where i wanted to take this conversation because um if i were to categorize listeners of the podcast i would categorize them as high performers mm -hmm. uh, there's definitely folks from the corporate world there's a lot of coaches um camp professionals um uh, thanks to dave skolnick he was my first camp guest on the podcast uh and and so when i think of high performers and i look at your world and what I've learned from you and, and still learning from you is the multifacets of it. So you, you're this, you're a business owner, you're a camp director, and then you're also politically involved and you throw yourself into everything you do to the point where you are uh, the chair of the New York state democratic party. So you're not just like just campaigning or helping like you've, you've risen to this position. Um, how did that side of things come about? Right? Cause if you look at the, the bio or the LinkedIn page, it might seem 
obvious, right? Someone sees that you were in law school and political science. Well, of course, this makes sense. But usually things aren't as linear as, as we make them out. So how did your political involvement I don't, I don't know so much where it came from uh, originally. I know that my father and my father's side of, of the family had political interest going way back. Not my father per se, mm-hmm. uh, and not my grandfather, but my great-grandfather um, back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, and he was on the Republican side um, in Queens, which encompassed Nassau, by the way, back in eight, before 1898. Uh, he had some involvement, but I, I was always very patriotic, and I was always very into history, and American history, and um, uh, and leadership, and things like that. I, I read a lot of biographies. Mm-hmm. Your house I, is a museum. Like, <laughs> well, I, I collect. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, all the, the different artifacts yeah, you have. Yeah, it's the letters and artifacts. Yeah. I, I have the last letter that Lyndon Johnson ever wrote. Uh, it wasn't even yeah. signed by him because he died on the day that he dictated it to wow. me, and the secretary sent it, and, and now it has to go to the LBJ. It was to you, correct? It was to me. Yes. Yeah. yeah and that's tell that it, story. Well, I, I had written LBJ um, after I had read the first part of his book, The Vantage Point, and in, in, that must have been in, in um, October, November of 72. Uh, so December, I get a letter from him thanking me for it and appreciating it and telling me that when I enjoy hearing from me when I finish it. Well, I finished it around then. I wrote him another letter probably in late December. And um, of course, you know, went off to the LBJ ranch, the letter did. Um, he, he died on the 22nd of January. Uh, he, he had gone, um, uh, dictated some letters I hear, uh, went to had lunch, decided to take his nap and he had a heart attack during his nap and he did, he died. Uh, and of course I was pretty broken up. I, you know, I, I felt badly about that. I, I thought highly of him uh, for whatever the faults were on Vietnam and all the rest. I just felt he, you know, did a lot of great, great work, civil rights and the rest. And so um, uh, I had this letter out to him, and I think that's the end of it. Well, about a week later, I get a letter and a big package, uh, actually, from the LBJ Ranch, and it's from his secretary, Mary Rather, who tells me that she that uh, President Johnson did not have the opportunity to sign his mail on January 22nd, but he had dictated this letter to you, and we transcribed it, thinking you might like to have it. And there on his official stationery is a letter that says, your words did more good for my heart than you know. And it's, uh, you know, meaningful in a certain mm-hmm. sense and a little ironic, yeah. if you will. Um, I took that letter ultimately down to the LBJ Ranch. Uh, Lady Bird Johnson heard about it, asked me to donate it to the LBJ Ranch when I die, which I will. Mm-hmm. And um, it started my collection, and I have all sorts of documents and letters and yeah. things that are Americana. But my, my interest in American history and the rest is premised on the fact that I, I think there is my belief there is no nation uh, on earth today or in our in the history of the world that holds as much promise and hope for people and can do so much good for people now it hasn't been a perfect uh, union as they say and we're not a perfect country and we're not perfect people uh, but I think we have to always strive to that perfection I think we strive to that perfection more than anyone else and I always liked watching the news and reading the newspapers, and I would have opinions and do things. And I had a friend of mine who you know, knew somebody involved in politics and got me engaged in that. I'd once thought of running for Congress or doing something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, and it just went into you know, getting me involved in the nitty-gritty of it because I just felt, look, it's wonderful to watch something, but you know, being immersed in it is far better. And then from a... Just to, and maybe I'll maybe I'll cut and put this back. But so I I've known for a long time that LBJ was a kind of a, in, I guess a 
mentor through books and reading for you. What is it about LBJ? I know you read a lot. Um, why, why him? LBJ was in the mold of Franklin Roosevelt, and he was a, a getter-dunner. LBJ was able to do what other people could not do. I, I read the book by Caro, um, Master of the Senate. You turned me on to that. Yeah. And I'm telling you, anybody that's interested in politics, raw politics, and by the way, everything he did, you're not going to just love LBJ all the time. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, he, he was a tough character. And there are things that he did and things about him that are, are not, you know, always admirable. But uh, in the to totality of it, with what he achieved and was able to get done through all of it, um, it's monumental. And, and I, I always appreciated that ability. You know, you got good talkers and good showmen. This guy was a workhorse who actually got it done. And yeah, did he make all the right decisions? No. Did he have his flaws? Yes. But he's a very complex figure. I'll tell you, Nixon, um, I'm a Democrat. Nixon, and he had his flaws. He was a brilliant strategist, too, brilliant in politics. You know, you could disagree with some of his direction of where he took things. But I find him fascinating. Mm -hmm. Churchill. Roosevelt, Lincoln, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Truman. These are people you can learn from. And I read endless books on them and others. Um, and of course, I've had the, uh, the good fortune of being able to meet you know, some of uh, our more current people and have conversations with them. And to me, it's like, uh, you know, it's like if you're a big baseball fan, Yankees fan, and you spend uh, an hour or two with uh, Jeter, boy, that, that's, uh, yeah. that's heaven. Yeah. Well, to me, it's the same in politics. Yeah. Uh, before we leave politics, because I want to give you time to answer my final question for you, is there anything else you wanted to say in terms of what you? No, I, I just think I think that you know you got to got to listen to Teddy Roosevelt's quote about the man in the arena. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not the critic that counts; it's not the one who points out how the doer of deeds might have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena. Mm -hmm. You know, and and um, I I believe that, and I you know I take a lot of heat on a lot of things for me. It's not that I don't care, and it's not that uh, it doesn't bother me. Of course, you know, you like everybody to like you. But I understand that's not politics. That's certainly not politics today. And, and my job in politics, I believe, in a little piece of it, because I'm, I'm inconsequential in the bigger scheme of things. I, I won't be in a history book. I, I'm lucky if I make a, fit, a footnote. But uh, it's just get good stuff done for people. And if you can do that and do your job, look, three governors have asked me to serve as state chair. And... Um, you know, I'm just going to keep doing the job I'm doing, not minding, you know, the critics that have something to say. And I know what's not true. And yeah. you got to live with it. That's the business. We're and in. I assume I have two questions on that. First of all, it's a self-fulfilling answer, but I, I want to give you space to talk about it. I assume you still believe you can get good stuff done through the work of politics, because I think a lot of people today uh, don't believe that. Yeah, no, no, I do. And, and, and I get good stuff done, but I'm behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever hears about what I do or what I can uh, talk to people about and get them to change their perspective on. Uh, the, the thing that I'm saddest about politics today is not just that we've gotten, you know, so extreme on both ends, you know, the liberal wing uh, 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 or the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and the uh, far right of the mm -hmm. uh, Republican Party, not just that part of it, but the nastiness. Mm -hmm. The fact that you can't discuss the merits of an argument, you've got to tear the person apart. Mm -hmm. And that's what they do. That. Yeah. That I think we have to change. And yeah. I think until we change that, it's going to be rough going. I know. So I, I was a political science major as well in college. And that was what I was taught was, you know, the our professors were always trying to get us to stop looking at the shiny object. Everyone wanted to run for office someday. That was our goal as 18, 19, 20 year olds. And they were trying to get through to us. There's a lot of 
good jobs in government that get a lot of great things done that you might actually be better suited for, enjoy more, uh, have more longevity in uh, that aren't uh, on TV and and getting people to understand that and also saying this was I thought interesting someone pointed out to me one time of you know of the hundreds of, of you know lawmakers there's really only four or five of them that you see on TV all the time and they're the ones that are going over to the cameras and and kind of wading through that I, I do think people that pay close attention and read uh, you know journal journalism know the good work that's being done but if you're watching the, the just Twitter which you're popular or not popular on Twitter, I guess, depending on oh. whether people like you or not. Um, and uh, uh, it, it can get overwhelming because it's it's more marketing at that rate in terms of marketing your stance or your, your side. Um, did you ever, this is my last question about politics because I do want to get to my, my podcast question, but um, I, I think a lot of people in your shoes as a business owner and a camp director would be hesitant to not only be involved in politics, but for their politics to be known. Uh, was that ever a concern for you? Uh, have you seen, not have you seen drawback, but like what is your kind of take on that idea of you are a very open political figure and I have to believe there's folks that send their kids to your camp and love you that are Republican. And that doesn't mean they have to hate you, right. but that's kind of what we're talking about, right? So like, yeah. how has that played out in your business world? Well, I, I've had Republican office holders send their kids to my camp. Sure. You know, they know me. Uh, camp is not a place for politics. Right. And I don't preach anything political um, at camp. Uh, I separate my business from politics on both ends. I don't, you know, my, my business is not advantaged mm. by my politics. Mm -hmm. I don't make money in politics in mm. any fashion or form, not directly, not indirectly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that the understanding that uh, everybody has gone with, and if there have been some exceptions, um, you know, where I've gotten hit, you know, uh, some political adversaries have tried to, and not on the Republican side, by the way, yeah. um, you know, uh, have tried to hit me and my business or my philanthropic uh, things, and, you know, it's gone nowhere because, you know, you, you keep yourself clean and you're going to be okay. Yeah. So you can't worry about it. But the way I believe is this, and I can't compromise this, you have to be able to engage in both if this is going to be the type of society that's going to move forward and make the progress America needs to make mm -hmm. and become everything we can become. Because if you can't be a business person with business interests and also be a fair and honest broker in the political world, okay, uh, then I think uh, we're shortchanging uh, the leadership of America. And, and um, I, I have discussions with parents. I, I have parents who come up to me and say, Jay, you think you're wonderful and everything's terrific. Your only shortcoming is you're a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And I smile and I laugh at them. Yeah. And I'm not going to engage them. You know, that's their view. And they have the right to their, their, their views on that. And you know something? We're, we have to also remember, we're all American. Even, and I, uh, you know, I'm going to offend some people, even the Trump, Trump MAGA, uh, even they're American. They get a vote. Their, their views are important. I disagree with them vehemently. And, and I do everything I can to see to it that they don't win the day. But you need to respect them. You need to try to understand them. You need to try to dialogue with them as best you can unless they're really you know, irredeemable in terms of being able to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and again, I'm not into you know, going back and forth and name-calling and nastiness. I mean, if you want to discuss merits, I'm always there for you. Mm -hmm. But um, I just think we have to have a broader uh, society of respecting one another and remember you know if a war comes and when wars in the past have come I got to tell you something when they were in the trenches in World War One or on the Navy ships or landing on the beaches of Normandy they weren't checking party affiliation mm. 
with the guy next to them. Never mind they weren't checking race and they weren't checking religion. Yeah. Okay, we're all American, we got a job to do. Unfortunately, it takes a thing like that to bring everybody together. I'm hopeful that reasonable minds and people in this business, and I hope to be one of those, can help bring that closer to fruition without us having to get into some you know, crazy war or some yeah. other awful thing. Well, that leads me to, you know, you're talking about bringing together and, and, and to me that's connection, which has been the whole point of this journey from the TED Talk to the podcast. Uh, and I've started asking my guests, uh, as I said in the beginning, do you have a 50 cups of coffee story? And what I mean by it, I'll tee it up for you. Uh, when I first uh, did the TEDx talk, it was taken by... I would say people that want to network and climb uh, as wow, it's great to sit down and meet with people and get something out of it. And I would always push back against that and say, it's really not about what you're getting out of it. It's just purely for the sake of connection. And then people would say, well, why? And I always had a hard time answering that question because for me, it was either natural or I just continued to see the benefit out of learning and growing from other people. So when I say 50 cups of coffee story, it's do you have a story of connecting with someone and that just maybe it was grabbing coffee, maybe it was a lunch, maybe it was a phone call that led to a, a meaningful moment in your life. Quite frankly, your LBJ letter could be a story uh, that you've already told, um, uh, or or it was something that changed the direction of your life. You know, the conversation you had with your your former camp owner. Um, I'll share my story, uh, unless you're like you got it on the tip of your tongue. So. I don't know if you remember this. I don't know if I've ever talked about this, but when I was, so I was at Hampton Country Day Camp. The previous summer, I was an intern in the comptroller's office in Annapolis uh, as a political science major. And I enjoyed it, but it, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, was working at Hampton Country Day Camp. And she was having the time of her life. And, and, and while I enjoyed my internship, I remember thinking like, that looks way more fun. Talk about just being happy. And, and so as a college student, I had this kind of wrestling debate of, you know, next summer, do I do a next level internship in politics and government where I thought I wanted to go? Or do I just go have fun? And I decided to just go have fun. I think I had never really done that. And so I go have fun and it blew me away. Like as a, I never went to camp like that as a camper. I came to it as a staff member and just the, the experience, the culture, what I got out of it, what I could see the kids get out of it. And I went into my director, which is Dave Skolnick. And I said, you know, I'd love to, to be more a part of this or be a camp director someday or make this a career. How do you do that? And he immediately said, well, you should sit down with Jay Jacobs. And, and I thought nothing of that. I was like, okay, cool. Who's Jay Jacobs? And then he told me who you were and I looked it up online and I was like, why Jay's not going to sit down with me. And, and sure enough, he put me in touch with you and I flew cause I grew up in Syracuse. So I flew to Long Island and uh, I was in a suit and tie because I thought that's what you should do. And I actually, you and I sat down in your office when I was a college student for I don't know. To me, it felt like an hour or two, but maybe it was 10 minutes. I don't know what it was. Um, and we just had a conversation. For me, it was purely an informational interview to learn about camp. And that was one of my first experiences where uh, someone 
sat down with me uh, just to just to chat and connect. And so I learned two things. Number one, I learned the power of asking that people will say yes. Uh, I think a lot of times people are afraid to ask someone to sit down for coffee thinking, why would they ever sit down with me? Um, so you taught me that people will say yes. And the second thing you taught me was uh, you said, do big things. I wrote down in my notebook, do big things. Right. And at that time, uh, you know, I had camp director in my head, but I didn't know the path there. And, and I had always dreamt of being a motivational speaker. And I say it with that tone because I don't think that's what I do. But that was kind of the dream at the time. And I walked out of that meeting and I wrote in my notebook, I must become a motivational speaker. And literally when I graduated college, that's what I did at 23 years old, which is, you know, looking back now, kind of crazy uh, and and built a career doing that for 12 years, which is how we stayed connected, coming back to your camps to work with your staff. And, and genuinely, I'm not trying to inflate your ego with this story. It came from that meeting. Certainly that had been in my head. It had been a thought. And I think you were one of the first people who gave me permission to say, go do that, that crazy thing just because that it's a big thing and it's what you want to do. So, um, again, you taught me that people say yes, and you also provided a, a big nudge and push. Uh, well, to I don't want you to worry about inflating my ego. If you speak to Mindy, my wife, <laughs> she'll tell you that's not, not possible. Yeah, so yeah. It, don't, it don't get any better. <laughs> no, I disagree, yeah. but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a great story, and yeah. I appreciate you telling it, and it's meaningful. It really is. And, yeah. um, you know, sometimes what seems like the routine and the ordinary, to me, may not be routine and ordinary to yeah, people, and I, yeah. I think that 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 uh, that's true. And I, I, if you're asking my story, I was, I was trying to yeah. grapple with it, and I, I don't want to be too much of a name dropper. And in, in a ah, sense, it's uh, always but, fun. People shy away from that, but it's I know. fun. <laughs> but but it it, it was t 2008, yeah. I think. And remember, getting into politics, and I got in politics really in '94, '93, '94, and and I became the county chair and the rest. And in my little world, my little piece of the world, I I. I built a good reputation. I hadn't become the state chair yet. I, my first go around, and that was 2009. And I think part of that was because of this story. And, and what happened was Hillary Clinton was running for, for president against Barack Obama in the primary, if you remember. Mm -hmm. Now, Hillary was a United States senator. I knew her. I knew her because she was our senator. I was the county chair. I mean, when I say I knew her, I don't want anybody to think, you know, if she saw me on the street, she'd go, oh, Jay, you know, how are you? And not then, anyway. I mean, now... Yes, but not not back then. Um, but I was very much involved, and I started raising a lot of money. And I went with do great things, which I talked talked mm -hmm. to you about. Uh, I raised. I didn't think I could do it, and I was raising good sums of money. And I was really pushing for it, and I and I admired her greatly. I still do. And um, the primaries got underway, if you remember, in the caucuses. And Barack Obama came out of nowhere. Um, I shouldn't say out of nowhere. He was he's a, a big deal at the time, but we thought for sure that Hillary was going to be the nominee. Mm -hmm. But he was racking up delegates. And I was following it in the Times, and I was talking to some campaign people, et cetera. And finally, I'm, I'm reading the New York Times and the, and the caucus results and the people that voted in the caucuses, which are a low uh, turnout events versus the primaries. And I began to notice that Obama was winning more delegates all through the caucuses. And there were a lot of caucuses at the time, maybe 15, 20. And Hillary was winning the primaries and winning a lot more votes because a lot more people were voting the primaries but getting less delegates. And she was losing it in the margins. So 
I did an analysis of this thing and it was like something popped in my head. I said, oh my God, they got to change their strategy. I don't know what the hell they're doing. So I wrote this memo and it explained the whole thing. And I, I tried to get it uh, to, I got it to, you know, one person at the campaign, nothing, another person. Finally, you know, I, I couldn't get it to anybody. Nobody would take my call, the campaign manager. I asked somebody, I'd like to speak to the campaign manager. They la actually laughed at me on the phone that the campaign manager is going to talk to me. <laughs> okay. So I got fed up and I said, you know, I, I, that's it. Now, what am I going to do? This is just stupid. So um, they were doing in the city, in New York City, they were having a campaign briefing for major donors in this law office on some umpty-umpt floor of a fancy office building. Um, and uh, they called and asked if I would come. And Hillary was going to be there. And I said, you know something, folks? You know, I've been sending you my stuff. Nobody's listening to me. I'm done. I'm going to go to other things. You, you guys got it. No thanks. I'm, I'm finished. So they said, no, please, come. We'd like you to come. I'll, we'll talk to you. I'll try to put you in touch with somebody. Fine. So I get there. I, I you know, I'm a sap. I, I went, get up to the... Um, up the floor, whatever it was, and they have this big room. It kind of looks like a college um, lecture hall room, you know, with the tables and the uh, and the and the uh, seats right behind them, all lined up in rows down to the, uh, the the well, if you will. And they put me in the second row, and I'm sitting down next to somebody, and I'm talking to them, and I, I'm I'm explaining that you know I've had a hard time. I be I believe there's something's up with the whole thing, with this uh, the caucuses and the rest, and half half listening to me. Before Hillary comes out and the campaign uh, manager comes out, uh, these young uh, volunteers come by and they take a stack of paper and they say, take one, pass it down. So everybody takes one. I'm like the fourth person. I take one, I pass it, pass it down. The whole place is packed with some really big, powerful, heavy hitters. And I look down, it's my memo. <laughs> and I get this like sick feeling, you know, like this nervousness just comes over me. With that, the manager comes, campaign manager comes in, talks a little bit, introduces Hillary. Hillary gets up and she says, before I begin, uh, you all have a memo that I've read, and I want each of you to make sure you read it, but I'd like to ask Jay Jacobs to come up to the front to explain it in five minutes, Jay. She said, I don't want you to take a lot of time. Could you do that? Come up here and explain this, what your theory is? I got up there in five minutes. I did. She thanked me. Yeah. I then had uh, uh, Terry McAuliffe in the back come up and he said, President Clinton heard about it, wants a copy of the memo and wants to know why the hell you didn't get it to him. And what I learned in that moment was uh, all of the self-doubt that I carry in things and had in things mm -hmm. is really misplaced. Now, that doesn't mean I'm great. It just means, you know something, you got to throw self-doubt out, put yourself forward, fight harder, get your, your word out there because maybe you make a difference. Ultimately, you know, we lost, uh, she lost that, that nomination, by the way, because of the caucus votes. Mm -hmm. And they all knew it. And that's how I ended up getting close with them in mm -hmm. the following up years. But you have to step out there and you have to, you know, believe in yourself. Because if you don't believe in yourself, nobody else will and just keep fighting. And it worked yeah. out. I, I, you've told me that story before. I love it. I think it's a perfect story to share for, for this 50 cups of coffee moment. And, uh, it reminded me that uh, somebody asked me within the last year who works at another camp, they said, you know, what is it that that uh, sets Jay apart now that you've got to know him better? And I said boldness. I really think that's it. I think not that that's your only characteristic or trait, but you look at uh, even just the course of this conversation, you know, buying and taking over a camp uh, and not just doing that, but saying, I think here's what 
needs to be done and can be done better in the face of those that want to keep it the same. Uh, and then even in this, whether it's politics or anything, having an idea. And like you said, maybe you have self-doubt through, with no one listening to it. At some level, you have to think, well, maybe this is a bad idea. Um, but there's still a sense of it's my idea and I still want people to see it and read it. And if at that point you shoot it down, sure. I'm not, you know, I, I don't have all the good ideas. However, you're going to go see it through uh, past the self-doubt to make sure people at least hear you and see you. Uh, and I think I think that's a big part of me trying to understand your success, which is purely what I do in this kind of role is just try to see what, what worked for people. And I think that's a big part of it. And that's come through in this interview. Great. Well, thanks for having me. There you have it. That cup of coffee was a long time coming for me. I think you could tell from camp to business to politics, I had and still have many questions for Jay. That does it for recent episodes, just these two for now. If you haven't already, go back and listen to episode 28 with Dave Skolnick. It is a terrific compliment to this episode. Listen to all the episodes if you like them. I am off to camp soon and will not be back until September. Maybe we will drop some new episodes in the fall. Stay tuned for that. If I can help your team in any way, head on over to bobbyaudley.com and shoot me a message. We help teams build winning cultures. 50 Cups of Coffee with Bobby Audley is a production of bobbyaudley.com. Head on over there to watch the 50 Cups of Coffee TEDx Talk, listen to past episodes of the show, and learn how I can help your camp, team, or organization. Our theme music and art is by Matisse Soy. Until next time, stay connected.